Hey everyone! Welcome to the podcast for the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, we encourage you to check out our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. And now, here's this week's message. My name is Adam Russell. This is The Vineyard, and uh, really, really happy that you're with us this morning. Uh, like I've already mentioned once before, I'm not speaking this morning, and that's because my good friend Jared Boyd is speaking. Jared, won't you come up? Everybody give Jared a big round of applause. Jared is a vineyard pastor in the Columbus area, and he pastors a very unique expression of the vineyard, and I'll let him maybe fill you in on that. Jared, yeah. do all that's in your heart. Thank you so much. Hey, it's great to be here. Um, I, I was here for Songs and Stories, and we had a lot of fun, and Adam, I just want to thank you for inviting me to speak. Uh, Adam's a good friend. Um, Adam, Adam's the kind of friend that calls you on a Wednesday afternoon and asks you to speak on Sunday. <laughs> and uh, I'm the kind of friend that says yes, I'm not going to say no to that, so here we are. So I'm really excited to be here with you. Uh, I do pastor... A uh, small church in Columbus, Ohio, we call Franklinton Abbey. We're trying to kind of lean into the contemplative stream of the faith. So we're trying to borrow some of our liturgies from the monastic tra- uh, tradition. And um, I'm actually not going to say anything else about that. I'm just going to let that sit. Hey, I want to talk to you this morning about how to keep your heart alive for the long haul. This is what Adam has asked me to talk to you about this morning, how to keep your heart alive for the long haul. I don't know if you guys know this, but when you decided to follow Jesus, the Apostle Paul says that your, your heart came alive in a new way. And ever since that moment, the world and your old patterns and the enemy are trying to kill you. They're trying to shut down your heart. And I think we're, we all run the risk of living a life with a deadened heart. And I want to talk to you this morning about that. If our heart doesn't die completely, if we're not paying attention, it becomes at least less alive in this kind of slow sort of way where we forget what it means to hope and love and to have the courage to say yes to the small invitations that come to us by the power and the presence of God. We can become deadened to the work that God wants to do in us simply by not paying attention. These invitations come to us in a variety of ways. Sometimes they come to us with this invitation to kind of lay down our own way and go the way of Jesus. How many have ever had that kind of invitation in your life? You can remember like moments where the Lord says, actually, that's not what I'm doing with you. We're going to actually ask you to turn this way. And you always have an invitation to say yes or no. Is that right? Uh, Other times the invitation comes to us to kind of listen to the small voice of the Spirit that is asking you to do something, prompting you to do something. And sometimes the thing that the Spirit asks you to do or prompts you to do actually doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? And it's like, God, is that you? It doesn't really feel significant. It doesn't, you're asking me to do something that doesn't really feel big. And the temptation is because it's not a big thing, you ignore it. And we have to kind of find the courage to say yes to the small things. This is what helps keep our heart alive. Our hearts can become slowly deadened in a way that we forget how to access the courage to allow the narratives of our life to turn out differently than we expected them to turn out. 
We all grow up thinking that our life is going to head in a particular direction, don't we? And I don't know about you, but I've never met anybody that is ending up the place that they thought they would end up. And somehow there's like this beauty and glory in that, but we have to find the courage to say yes to that new narrative or that new dream that is interrupting the old thing. And if we don't do that, we slowly allow our heart to die. And when we do this long enough, when we allow our attention to kind of get on things that distract us from the reality of our real life, the deepest places of the things that are going in us, our heart, like a muscle, begins to atrophy. And we become weary of an atrophied heart. How many of you have had a season in your life where you feel like you are weary from a heart that is kind of crumbling up? Anybody ever been in a season like that? I know I have for sure. And yet over and over and over again, Jesus invites us to come, those who are burdened and heavy and weary-hearted, to come to him where we find life. The second century bishop Irenaeus said that the, 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 the heart's fully alive of you and I is the glory of God. So why do I want to talk to you about hearts becoming alive and staying alive? Is because when you and I live with a heart that is fully alive, we are the glory of God in the world. And so here's what I want to do. I want to tell you how to keep your heart alive right here at the beginning. And then we're going to spend the rest of the time kind of diving a little deeper. Um, the way we keep our hearts fully alive for the long haul is we pay attention to the reality of our lives as they truly are, and then we bring what we notice there into conversation with Jesus. We pay attention to our lives, the reality of our lives, as they truly are, without kind of masking or imagining them differently. We pay attention to what is actually going on in our life, and we bring that into conversation with Jesus. It sounds kind of simple, but it's not simple. Um, let me ask you just a couple questions. In that little couple minutes of silence that we had, what did you notice about your life? Like what came up to you in a way that if you hadn't had that three or four minutes, maybe you wouldn't have thought about for like maybe another month? That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about, the reality of our lives as they truly are. Thomas Merton, who uh, lived his adult life about an hour from here at the Abbey of Gethsemane, he says this, he says, there's no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality. To be immersed in unreality. For life is maintained and nourished by our vital relation with reality with our life as it truly is. Unreality is the way in which we try to forget what is actually happening in our life. The pain and the heartache and the change of plans and the job that didn't work out and the relationship that didn't, didn't work out and the dream that didn't come through, that's the reality of your life. But how many of you experience ways in the world where you try to ignore all of that stuff. Anybody? Anybody do that? Anybody? I'm the only one. Okay. That's great. So nobody else has a subscription to Netflix. Okay, sweet. Nobody else is binging like Stranger Things or This Is Us or 
anything like that, okay? Um, guys, we are constantly trying to distract ourselves from our lives. And the way we distract ourselves from our lives is that we watch other people's lives. We, we try to live out. And this, guys, this is normal. This is okay. This is like what it means. This is part of what it means to be human is that we get caught up in the drama because our drama is really hard. Our drama is really hard to sit with. One of the questions that I've been asking myself over the past few years, and this began a couple of years ago, is, is this question. And it's part of the question that I want to ask you this morning. Do I allow Jesus to interact with me the way that I see him interacting with other people in Scripture? Do you allow Jesus to interact with you in the way in which we notice that he interacts with people in Scripture? Um, Jesus has this way about him, doesn't he, where he helps us kind of get to the reality of our life. And we could pick any number of passages, we could pick any number of stories uh, to kind of dig deeper in that. But think with me about the, the blind man, the beggar on the street who calls out to Jesus. Some of you may know this story. He calls out to Jesus. He's clearly blind. The disciples are trying to kind of hush him away. And finally, Jesus turns and gives him some attention, and he asks him a question. He says, what is it that you want me to do for you? It's kind of like, dude, I'm blind. <laughs> like, you've been healing people all week, and you want to know what you want me to do? I want you to heal me. What is Jesus doing there? He is helping that person get present to the reality of their life, is what he's doing. He's like, I want you to see what you want. And I want you to get present to it. And then I'm going to do the thing that you ask me to do. What about the woman that we read about who, who grabs the hem of Jesus' robe? How many of you know this story? That's a beautiful story, isn't it? There's this crowd around Jesus and everybody is pressing into him. He's trying to kind of get through the traffic and the disciples are kind of, kind of trying to lead him through the town. And everybody is pressing in on him because he's the most popular guy because he's been healing. And this woman grabs the hem of his garment and he's like, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what do you, dude, what do you mean? Like, everybody is touching you right now. But he says, no, 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 wait, stop. Somebody touched me. I felt power that came out of me. What's going on? And this woman, she says, it was me. I did it. What is he doing? He is helping her get present to the reality of her life. And the reality of her life is that she had spent her entire life savings trying to get healed by doctors and, and, and special people who are trying to cleanse her and free her from a problem of bleeding. She'd been bleeding for seven years and he lays hands on her. Actually, she lays hands on him and she is healed from that bleeding issue. He is helping her get present. She had already been healed. And he could have just said, oh, wow, that was, that was really cool, Spirit. You just did something there, but I'm going to go on my way. But no, he stops everything, and he helps her get present to the reality of her life. You think about Zacchaeus. Jesus says to Zacchaeus, you know, your favorite little, like, Bible story. They're probably talking about it in nursery right now, because, like, what else is there to talk about in nursery but Zacchaeus? <laughs> Jesus simply comes to Zacchaeus' house, and what I suspect is, like, a pretty normal dinner conversation ensues. And by the end of dinner... Zacchaeus becomes present to the reality that he had swindled people over and over and over out of their fortunes to line his own pocket. And by the end of dinner, he is ready to give back to them four times what he had stolen. And Jesus says, 
what a really neat thing happened here. This entire household has been saved over dinner. And Zacchaeus getting present to the reality of his life as it truly has been. Isn't that an amazing thing that Jesus does? And my question for you and I this morning is, are you allowing Jesus to do that for you? To get present to your life as it really truly is, unmasked from how you wish it actually was. So the way that we keep our hearts alive is we get present to the reality of our life and we talk to Jesus about it. So I suppose I could have picked any passage to kind of dive a little deeper in, but Wednesday morning, uh, which is the day that Adam asked me to preach, I was meditating on the passage. I love you, buddy. I was meditating on the passage where Jesus meets this woman at the well. And I'd been chewing on that passage all day, and I'd been like immersing myself in it. And I'd actually revisited this question of, am I allowing Jesus to interact with me in the way in which he is interacting with this woman at the well? And so since Adam called me on Wednesday afternoon and I said yes, I figured it was as good a passage as any to dive deeper into. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, which nobody ever has anymore, you can pull your app or I don't have it on the screen, but I'm going to read the passage and kind of narrate the story for you this morning. And um, if it's helpful for you to close your eyes and imagine yourself into this scenario, um, that's actually what I like to do. And I might interrupt that imaginative process for you a little bit by uh, kind of giving some details around the story. Uh, but you're welcome to close your eyes, and I'll, I'll just assume you're not falling asleep on me. So uh, verse 3 in John chapter 4. Starts like this, says, So he, Jesus, left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. And now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to drink water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? For his disciples had gone into town to buy some food. So stop right there because I need to give you some details about this interaction. And some of you may know some of these details. um, And I'm going to tell you anyway about them. Uh, Samaritans were a group of people that were basically a split off from the Jewish people. Uh, Kind of a few generations earlier, this group of people began to intermarry with some Gentiles And so over time, the Samaritans became further removed from their Jewish heritage. And effectively, they became kind of a half race of people. So much so that the Jewish people of the day actually did not recognize them as Jews. And so there was actually some racial tension there because these Samaritans had kind of intermarried with Gentiles. And according to Jewish law, that was a bit of a no-no. So there's this like racial tension that is like really present here in this story. Um, So they had some racial tension and they had some theological tension. Uh, the, The Samaritans believed that there was a particular mountain that you were supposed to worship God at. They they basically said, No, we need to be worshiping God at this mountain, Gazerim. And all of the other Jews worshiped in the city at the temple. But the Samaritans didn't recognize the temple for what it truly was. You guys with me? 
Lots of theological tension. Their whole framework for how they saw the world was different than their Jewish kind of heritage and brothers and sisters. And so there's this racial tension and there's this like, theological tension where the Jews basically believe, the Jewish people believe that the Samaritans were effectively sellouts. That they had not stayed true to what it meant to be a part of the family. There's this like really big ideological conflict that's emerging here in this story. Um, most Jews thought that Samaritans were unclean, even to the degree that if you walked into Samaria, a lot of Jews believed that you yourself became unclean just by being on the land that was occupied by the Samaritans. That sounds like a, a little bit weird, doesn't it? And so here we have Jesus coming into this thing. There are a lot of Jewish people that actually uh, one of the Pharisees once said to Jesus, um, you, are, you are a Samaritan. And it was kind of like one of the worst things he could have said to Jesus. So I want you to imagine a scenario that is full of racial tension and theological tension and ideological tension. There's as much tension happening in this story as a, as a, as a white police officer accidentally bumping into an African-American man in the middle of the city. So I wonder if like, this has anything to say to us about the kind of posture that Jesus walks with. There's a lot of, there's a lot of tension happening here in this story. So Jesus um, is standing at the well in Samaria when a Samaritan woman walks up to the well and Jesus asks her for a drink of water. The Samaritan woman said to him, I'm in verse 9 now, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John puts in here, um, in case you aren't catching it, uh, Jews and Samaritans don't interact with each other. He's like saying, listen, you, if you're not going to get what I'm trying to do here unless you really understand that there's a lot of tension here. So Jesus answers her in verse 10. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So listen, Jesus asks for a drink. And do you know why I think he asks for a drink? I think he's thirsty. I don't think Jesus is like doing this evangelistic trick. Like, like oh, you know, if I ask her for a drink and she's going to ask me a question and then I get to talk to her about living water. Like that's not what's happening here. I really believe that Jesus is just thirsty because it's noon. Uh, he didn't go into town to buy food because he's tired. And so he's just literally resting there at the well. And this woman comes up and I think he's thirsty. And it's not really his well. It doesn't really belong to him. He doesn't have anything to draw water with. And so because he's thirsty, he says, hey, could you please give me a drink? Would you draw some water and would you give me a drink? And her first response was to highlight why this scenario shouldn't even be taking place. Her first response is to kind of put up the wall and to basically say, this conversation should not be happening. Why are you, a Jewish man, asking me, talking to me, a Samaritan woman, 
to give you a drink. Um, you know, Jewish men would not have like had the typical just regular interaction with women. There was lots of kind of fear around that. There was some fear of uh, possibly being unclean. There was some fears around, um, you know, what people might think and whether there would be some temptation that ensued. Obviously, this is a very different culture. But this scenario right here should not be happening. And the woman puts a huge wall right in front of Jesus and says, why are we doing this? Okay? Do you see her resistance to conversation right here? Now watch what Jesus does. Um, well, one thing he begins to realize is I do think he begins to see the irony of the situation. The irony of the situation is that I think with spiritual eyes, Jesus begins to recognize that, that he is asking for a drink of water, but he actually has living water. And so I think by the Spirit, he recognizes that this woman has a, a vessel to draw water with, but she is really, really thirsty. And he begins to press in to the reality of her life as it truly is. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? And he becomes curious. So she begins to turn her attention to the well. Again, do you notice the kind of like, why are we doing this? I'm going to actually now talk about something else. Uh, why are you asking me for water when we shouldn't be having this conversation? And she begins to kind of shift the conversation away from her and onto this problem, this question that she's having. She's positioning herself. She's being faced with some discomfort of this interaction with this Jewish man. And she's trying to make clear to Jesus by this next statement something really clearly. She says this. Uh, she offers to give her water. And then I, I think that she's curious, but there's still something about her life that she says next that indicates that is, she isn't quite ready to receive what Jesus is offering. She turns her attention to the well, which she says is here because Jacob gave it to them. She's connecting this well with the story of the Jewish people. Stay with me here. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. She's drawing attention to the well. She is making a claim about her own identity. Effectively, she's stating plainly and clearly how she views herself and her people as part of the line of people that goes all the way back to Jacob. Do you remember the cutoff I told you about, about how the Samaritans feel that they're not part of that family? Do you see what she's doing here? She is saying, I am part of the family. I am connected to Jacob. And we're starting to get with the re to the reality of what this woman is facing, which is that she is part of a people that feel disconnected from their story. And she is frustrated by that to the degree that she feels like at the outset she has to fight in order to be included in that. 
She says that I drink from the well that Jacob gave us. I'm connected to Abraham. I'm in the family. And no matter what you say about it, whatever it is that you're talking about in terms of living water, you possibly can't be greater than our father Jacob. Now she's beginning to get to the reality of her situation. That she wants to be a part of the family of God. And she has been unincluded. Does this make sense? That's why she's bringing up the family line. She's refusing to skirt around the issue of the fact that Jesus being a Jew would have questioned her part in the story. She wants to be a part of the story. And what begins to happen in this story is that Jesus begins to talk about water in a way that turns it into a metaphor about a new thing that God is doing where you don't have to feel the way you feel any longer about being excluded in the family because the Spirit of God is opening it up to everybody. It's a very intricate thing happening here between Jesus and this woman. Go with me uh, to verse 15. The woman said to her, Sir, give me some of this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He said to her in verse 16, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, is that you have had five husbands and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So let me stop right there because now we are at reality. Now we're no longer pretending. It's not about the well. It's not about Jacob. It's now becoming about this woman's life. And I don't know how you read this story, but oftentimes we read this story is that we assume that this woman has sort of blown through five marriages. That that she is this kind of wild horse kind of woman. And what we have to remember is that in that culture, women did not divorce men, but men divorced women. And so this is something that has been done to her. Now, the question is, why has it been done to her? It might be the case that she has, in fact, had multiple adulterous affairs and that she has been put out by each husband one after the other. But I wonder if you could find a place in your heart to grow compassion for the woman that has five affairs. Like that's not something to shake a finger at. That is something to put our arms around and embrace that there is something happening here in this woman's life where she has been divorced five times because there's a compulsion within her that is broken. Does this make sense? We often look at this woman with judgment or we look at women like this or people like this and we fail to see that this is also true about our own lives. That there are things about us that we cannot see that end up bringing us down this piece of destructive behavior. And I wonder if you can grow to have compassion for this woman in this moment in the way in which Jesus had compassion for her. Here's another way of reading the story, and this may help on the compassion front if you're having trouble getting there. It might be the case that this woman married into a family 
of like a bunch of brothers. And in that culture, if you were married into a family and your husband died, it would have been pretty reasonable and also sometimes required for the next brother to receive you as his wife. And so I want you to also imagine that possibly the story is that she married into this family of brothers and she has had five husbands that have died. And now she is with a man who is not her husband because this man is probably not one of the brothers because all of the brothers are gone. They've all died. And, and she's probably later in her years and the person that she's not with is not her husband because there would have been no requirement of him to marry her, but out of the kindness of his heart, he has brought her in. What if that's the story? What if the story is that she's really sad, that she's not an adulterer, but that life has like brought this to her and that she is broken. Now we're talking about the reality of her life. But here's the really glorious thing, is that she is talking to Jesus about it. Does that make sense? Like, I just wonder, like, what that is for you. What area of your life would Jesus need to ask you about for it to reveal the sort of like pain and discomfort that I suspect that this woman is feeling. Because however you read the story, this is not a comfortable conversation. Jesus is clearly a prophet. She recognizes it. He is clearly seeing at a deeper level. And what I want to ask you and I this morning is what is the deeper level thing that Jesus would want to get you present to in your life? Do you know what that is? The thing that if Jesus were to just say, hey, can I talk to you about this thing right here? That you would feel like, oh man, shoot. That's like really painful. The extent to which you're talking to Jesus about that thing is the extent to which your heart is alive. Do you know what it is? And are you talking with Jesus about it? Is the only question that I want to ask you this morning. So we know that this is a, a woman that's in a lot of pain because she is at the well, at the noon hour. And if you're living in the Middle East in Samaria, that is the last time of day that you would want to go to the well because the sun is at its highest and it is hot. And all of the women in the village would have, um, first thing in the morning, they would take their trip to the well. It was kind of a social activity. Um, they would travel together and the kids would be behind and they would take their jars and they would fill the jars and they would take it back into town. And it was kind of like the office water cooler where all the gossip of the town would happen, Right? And this woman is there all by herself in the middle of the day when it's hot and she's alone. And so she is not in a good spot in her life. So Jesus begins to uncover 
gently. Do you notice how gentle Jesus is? Do you notice how gentle he is here? Uh, Let me just, let me go down this path a second. Like we're off notes at this point. So let me just, I just feel like the spirit of God wants me to say something to you. Um, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. That's what God is like. God is like Jesus with the woman at the well. And I don't know what your experience of God is, but if when you hear God speak to you, if it sounds harsh, if it sounds kind of biting, if it sounds like fierce in a way that doesn't also feel loving, because there is a ferocity about God that is also loving. That's not what I'm talking about. But if you are not experiencing the kindness of God, I think that you are not actually experiencing God because God is kind and loving and generous. Now, I thought, I thought in the South you guys said amen, but maybe not. Thank you. So Jesus begins to uncover and invite conversations about some things that make up the reality of this woman's story as it truly is. And listen to what happens as Jesus begins to uncover the reality of her story. Sir, said the woman, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So she's popping up another theological difference. She doesn't really want to talk about the issues of five husbands. (laughs) Maybe it's too personal. And so she realizes she's talking with a prophet, someone that can see beneath the, perfect, beneath the surface, but it's unlikely that she had read Brene Brown's work on vulnerability. <laughs> she probably didn't know how to talk about the shame in her life, but she did realize that she was with a prophet. And we see earlier that another part of the reality of her life is her insistence that she is part of God's family. And so she begins to question about where they are supposed to worship God. And he says this, verse 21, woman, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And he goes on to say some more things, but here's what I want to point out. is He doesn't keep pressing about the issue of the husbands, does he? He's inviting her to talk about it. She skirts the issue. She raises a couple questions, and he's like, oh, okay, well, we could talk about that. He's so gentle. He's so gentle. The woman said, I know that Messiah called the Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? And then leaving her water jar. I don't miss that. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the one? (laughs) Sorry. 
Look, there's a lot going on in this little passage. Obviously, there's a lot going on in me right now, but um, I want to draw your attention to a couple things specifically. I want you to notice how Jesus reacts to her. Take a step back from this interaction, and we notice that the woman is primarily carrying two questions. What is her place in the world, and is her relationship with God okay? What is her place in the world, and is her relationship to God okay? And look, I don't know about you, but those seem to be really, really good questions for us to sit with. And I don't know about you, but I find myself over and over and over again throughout my life asking questions very similar to this. Where am I in my life and in the world? And am I doing it right with God? Here's the beauty of this passage. He doesn't answer either question. He just brings himself. That's it. He doesn't give her an answer about like where to worship. He doesn't say anything about whether or not she's doing it right with God. He says, I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the one that you have been waiting for. And we just had this really significant conversation about something. And I'm still standing here. Does this make sense? Guys, this is a glorious story about the love of God and the presence of God to this woman. What he gave her was himself. And she drops the bucket, she comes out of hiding, and she goes back into town and to tell everyone what she had experienced by dealing at least a little bit with the realities of her life in a conversation with the Christ, the one that they had been waiting for. So let me just ask you a question. What are some of the realities of your life that you are not talking to Jesus about? What are those for you? And why not? Like, why, why are you not talking to the Lord about the real life that you live? Um, so I thought maybe we could just ask the Holy Spirit to come and do some work around that question for us as we close. So I, uh, could you stand? Thanks again for stopping by the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening at the Vineyard, you can follow us on social media. Until next time. <laughs>